web at wagp.net. I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I'm Christine Foskey, and that quote is from Chuck Swindoll. My husband Mike and I own Foskey Heating and Air, and we promise you honest answers and affordable options. There are a lot of heating and air companies that want to sell you things you just don't need and fail to provide options. At Foskey Heating and Air, we provide the personal service you deserve 24-7 at 681-HEAT. That's 681-4328. Thank you, and God bless. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible line. We welcome your questions and comments as you've been studying God's word. Maybe you have an issue that you would like to discuss or some challenge you're facing in your life that you would like to have biblical counsel on. If you can call us locally, the number is 525-1859. If you're an internet listener or some place outside the state, we have a toll-free number for you. That number is 877-WAGP. 980-877, our call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at net. When you call, you can dictate your question or go on the air live. You can remain anonymous or however you'd like to give us the question. If we can answer, we'll do our best to help. It's good to be here, Rick, as always. And, uh, it's a great opportunity to open the Word of God together. Indeed it is, Pastor, and we have a number of questions that have come in, so let's get to them. How do you disclose your financials to your congregation? A listener wants to know in Bluffton. He says, I belong to a church in Bluffton who does not do this, and I was wondering if they should for transparency reasons. Thanks for your response. Well, a couple of things. You know, One, uh, I know we at Community Bible Church once a year post our uh, budget for members. And so that's available. Uh, it comes available usually right about this time. I think, in fact, I think they'll have it available on Christmas day, Christmas Sunday for those that are members and would like to receive more information about how the money is spent. As a general rule, if, uh, you know, a church won't show you how the money is being spent, I, I wouldn't give to it. Uh, I think if you're a member of that church, then you certainly have a right to see how the monies are being spent and how it's being unfolded. I think that's important. And um, most churches do that just as a matter of integrity. Uh, if someone is a member of our church and they want to see, I know our budget obviously is over $3 million a year. And so it's difficult to, 
you know, line item everything. But if someone's a member and says, well, I see that you gave, you know, $800,000 to missions this past year, how does that break down? They can meet with one of our elders or financial secretary, and it shows the breakdown for each and every missionary and how it was spent and likewise. So, um, you know, I think a church should do that for its members. And certainly, you know, uh, the generalities for someone who's not a member but's interested and want to know how their money is going to be spent if they tithe to that local assembly, I think that's important. So good question. I appreciate it. All right. Our next question comes from a listener in Rhode Island who says, I regularly tithe to my home church that I attend weekly. I recently received an end-of-year bonus, and we'll be tithing out of that as well. Am I biblically obligated to give you the tithe in its entirety to my local church or can I disperse it to organizations such as yours that, uh, of course, would be Search the Scriptures that could also put the money to good use for the advancement of God's kingdom? Well, you know, as much as I would appreciate people who give to Search the Scriptures, uh, I do believe your tithe belongs to your local church. It doesn't belong to Focus on the Family or Billy Graham or this radio station or my radio ministry or anything else you can think of. It belongs to the local church. That's the biblical pattern. Now, if you're not certain on that and you don't have a conviction on that, you might want to listen to a recent message that I preached out of the book of Habakkuk, where I bled together Habakkuk 1 and Malachi 3, and what does the Bible really teach about tithing? There's a lot of folks today who will try to tell you that, well, tithing is not for today. It's simply an Old Testament practice. They'll try to tell you that it was not a single tithe, but a multiplicity of tithes, that it was not 10%, but... 13% or 23%, as some will argue. I don't believe that's true. I I believe that a tithe is 10%. There is a plurality in Malachi 3, bring the tithes into the storehouse. But the same plural word is used in the Greek New Testament. uh, In Hebrews 7, of Abraham, who is said to have given tithes, plural, and yet it says he gave 10%. So a tithe is 10%. It's actually a mathematical term in both the Hebrew and Greek language. And I believe that's what God's people are to do. They brought it into the storehouse in the Old Testament. What is kind of interesting in the New Testament, and again, the the parachurch uh, groups outside of the local church is rather a new phenomenon. When you just keep that in mind, that might answer some questions. The parachurches as we have them today, that is organizations that were Um, established outside of the local church is only something that's been around in the course of church history for around 150 years. So it's rather a new thing for, you know, a group like, you know, uh, a missionary organization like Campus Crusade for Christ or, you know, Sudan Interior Missions or uh, OMF or uh, focus on the family or whatever it might be. Uh, that That's a rather new phenomena in the realm of church history. Even Search the Scriptures is a ministry of Community Bible Church. And I really believe that that is the pattern that God gives uh, his people, uh, that they should be, in essence, born in bread out of the local church. But with that said, even in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also on the first day of every week. And that, of course, is the day that the church met. met. The New Testament Sabbath, if I can use that term, uh, was not Saturday, but Sunday, the first day of the week, because that was the day in which uh, we 
uh, honor the resurrected Christ. Uh, the Bible's Ten Commandments have full application for today. The, applic- the, the, the way they may be applied under the New Testament may be different than under the Old Testament, but they're still all binding. For instance, uh, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land, as it's stated in the book of Deuteronomy, is restated in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 differently. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So originally, when given to the Jewish people, their promise was for a long life in the land. In what land? In the land of Israel. But Paul, when he applies it to the church, which is an international community made up of Jew and Gentile that is dispersed throughout the earth, he says that you may live long on the earth. So the the fifth commandment still applies, but its application is slightly different. So it is with... uh, with the Lord's Day, uh, it was Saturday under the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, it is Sunday. So he says, on the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save. Interestingly, the King James says, put aside in or lay up in store, uh, which is actually very literal to the Greek New Testament, but rather wooden, uh, but still literal and sometimes helpful. What's interesting is there is a translation of the Old Testament in Greek, we call it the Septuagint. And so when uh, the prophet Malachi says that you're to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that's a noun in Hebrew, but in Greek, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's identical to the verb usage here in 1 Corinthians 16. In other words, The New Testament storehouse is the local assembly. So your tithe belongs to your local church. Now, certainly there were offerings that were given, which were above and beyond the tithe. For instance, in the Old Testament, God said, look, when you harvest your field, uh, leave the corners and the edges for the alien and for the widow and the orphan so that they could come in and they would have something since they did not own land Uh, they would have something by which they could be sustained and blessed. Now, of course, uh, how wide your edges and how fat your corners were, I suppose, were dependent on your generosity. But still, uh, there were offerings that were given outside of the storehouse, and that was one. And there are offerings today that are given outside of the storehouse. So when you think of giving, it starts with 10% to your local church. Now, God may allow you to give above and beyond 10% to a ministry like Search the Scriptures or WAGP or Focus on the Family, and if he allows you to do that, fantastic. But it starts with the local church. Let me just say this. Parachurch organizations come and go, and it's not the parachurch organization, for the most part, that does the dirty work. Uh, The people who are in the trenches dealing with people's problems, people's heartaches, uh, the 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 ongoing testimony in a community is the local assembly, and that's where Christians are to begin begin in their giving. I appreciate the question; it's a good one, and hopefully that helps. But you might want to listen to that message recently done out of the Book of Habakkuk, and it's online at cbcofbuford.org. In the Bible, our next question is: Where does it say that we sin daily, or something along those lines? Well, it doesn't say um, 
that we sin daily, but it does say this in First John. Um, he is writing, of course, to Christians who are saved, and he is writing not to deal so much with our relationship with God, but with our fellowship with God, what we have heard from the beginning, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've beheld with our hands, and so forth. He said, we're proclaiming to you that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. And he will go on and speak about principles for fellowship while dealing with the false teaching of the Gnostics, who basically said, well, you know, we don't sin anymore. Um, So he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's an assumption here that Christians sin. And because Christians do sin and because sin breaks fellowship with God, our responsibility is to confess our sin, not to be saved. First John 1, 9 is not a salvation verse, has nothing to do with salvation. It's a verse dealing not with our relationship with God, but our fellowship with God. We're not saved by confessing our sins. Sometimes you'll ask a non-Christian, why should God let you into heaven? And they'll tell you, well, I confessed my sin and I was sorry for it. And God said, if I would confess, he would forgive. That is a promise given to those who are already saved. This has nothing to do with salvation. It is a promise given to those who are saved and it has everything to do with our intimacy with God. And it's given not as a motivation to sin, but as a motivation not to sin. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, though, we have an advocate with the Father, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, you know, the Bible teaches that we all sin. We all stumble in many ways, James will write. That's an understatement, I suppose. Um, Who can say that he has cleansed his hands from sin, the psalmist will write. So none of us are sinless in this life. But if we are progressively growing on our relationship with the Lord, God can change us, change bad habits, and change the kinds of sins that we are committing as we're conformed to the image of Christ. But we will not be sin-free until the resurrection of the body when we will receive a resurrected body like Christ and we'll be just like him. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. Phone line's ringing right now. We'll see if they want to go live. And you can always email us at tbl at net. All right, while we're uh, waiting for that call to get dictated or online, uh, we have an email. Actually, they are going to go live. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How you doing? I'm doing great, Anthony. How are you? All right. I'm up taking a few days off. I'm listening to the radio. Dr. Brogan, how are you doing this morning? Doing well. Thank you, Anthony. Question for me and some of my friends. Doctor, I mean, Pastor, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and for the first time the Holy Spirit comes lives inside of us, now when the Lord, when God sees us, he sees us as clean clean, correct? That's correct. Uh, right. Okay. Yes. Now, if uh, in the Bible it says when we become 
you're not called saints, correct? That's correct. That's a term that's applied to every born-again Christian, not a select few, but everyone is called a, a holy one or a saint, you could translate. Okay. So are we still, even though we are called saints, are we still considered sinners? Or is it correct or incorrect for us to say we are sinners, still sinners, saved by grace? But we are still sinners. But are we saints? It's a good okay. question. And I'm going to hang up and listen to you. All right. Um, you know, you'll hear pastors answer this question in different ways, and some will dogmatically with, you know, the deepest amount of conviction in their heart tell you, don't say that I'm a sinner, I'm a saint. I have a new identity in Christ, and God calls me a saint. And that is true, positionally. And they are sometimes trying to discount the false doctrine that, you know, our position is earned or achieved through human merit and human performance, and it's not. Salvation is the gift of God. It's not something we earn. It's something we receive. So Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Uh, The Father made Christ who had never sinned to become sin on our behalf. On the cross, he bore in his own body, Peter wrote, our sins. He became the object of God's disdain, the object of God's wrath. The hatred of Almighty God was poured out on his son. It's an amazing thought to ponder, but that's what the Bible teaches. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And by become, he's not speaking of a future attainment. He's speaking of what can be a present reality. And so he's appealing to people. He says, as if God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. And so the become is a a reality that happens to the sinner the moment he believes on Christ. He is imputed Christ's righteousness, credited to his account is the righteousness of Christ. We call that justification in the New Testament. Not that you are made righteous, but you are declared righteous in the sight of God. That speaks of our position. So in that sense, we're not sinners. We're saints, hagios, holy ones, hagioi, the plural. We are holy ones before God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so even the worst of Christians in the New Testament are called saints. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and I suppose if there were any church that had problems, it was the Corinthians. And so he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, all with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's what he writes in Second Corinthians. And in First Corinthians, he More definitive, Paul called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he says, saints or holy ones by calling. So we are called saints by by the work of Almighty God, drawing us to himself. We're declared holy in his sight. That speaks again of position, but practice is another thing. And so you could equally say with a sense of dogmatism in your heart, getting back to the first question, do Christians still sin? The answer is yes. The one who says he has no sin is deceiving himself. The one who says he's not sinned is calling God a liar because God's word from Genesis to Revelation teaches that God's people still sin. 
So we are still sinners. We have a new position, but we are to grow in Christ. There's saving grace, but the Bible commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus in 2 Peter 3. So we're to grow in grace, and as we grow in grace, we're changed in the image of Christ. God causes all things to work together for good to those who know him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? Well, that we might be conformed to the image of his son, the next verse says. So God is in the process of making us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We call that sanctification. Uh, And then there's coming a day when we shall see him as he is and be just like him. 1 John 4, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Uh, Both those passages teach that there's coming a day when body, soul, and spirit will be totally and completely and forever set aside as holy in the sight of God. We call that glorification. So we've been saved in the past from the penalty of sin, justification, and we are being saved in the present from the power of sin as we grow up in Christ. That's sanctification, and someday we will be saved from the very presence of sin. That's called glorification. So positionally, we are holy. Practically, we are declared to become holy, passages like 1 Peter 2. And uh, in the end, we will be completely made holy when we receive a glorified body. That's a great day that we're still looking forward to. 525-1859, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP-980, or you can email us at tbl at net. A listener out of state writes, I asked Jesus to save me about nine years ago. Is it possible to ask for salvation and not receive it? I read the Bible almost daily, always listen to radio programs such as Search the Scriptures and Swindoll, etc. In the Old Testament, it talks about God cursing generations. I feel as though maybe I can't be saved. I don't have the peace and assurance I thought I would have. Although I've seen some improvements in my life, I'm still struggling with an addiction to pain medication. I get it prescribed by a doctor, and I do have pain issues, but I know in my heart that I should not be taking them. I've asked, prayed, begged to God to help me get past this addiction, but am still struggling. I appreciate your style and often feel convicted after listening to you. I heard a message you gave the other day, I'm paraphrasing, that if your life hasn't changed, you probably aren't saved. I want to walk with God. I want to go to heaven, but I still feel lost. I don't want to be one of those people who Jesus says, I never knew you. Can you give me your thoughts? Is that a local question or? uh... That is a search the scriptures question. All right. So from out of state, I'm assuming. All right. Uh, the reason I ask is how I might uh, apply this in terms of trying to get you some 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 help and some thoughts here. Yes, it's possible to answer your first question if you'll scroll that back up a little bit. Um, it, the questions come through on a, a monitor, and that's what I have in front of me to those who are listening for the first time. I have a Bible on a monitor with the questions in front of them. Um, is it possible to ask for salvation and not receive it? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, People have prayed the sinner's prayer hundreds of times, some, and never have been saved. I had a man in my office many years ago. I did his funeral a few years ago. And when he first came to see me, he said, if I had a nickel for every time I prayed the sinner's prayer, I'd be a rich man. He said, I've prayed it so many times, and I still don't have assurance of my salvation. Well, sometimes people pray the sinner's prayer without understanding 
They're just reciting words that they don't really understand. And there are some things that you must understand that God must open your eyes to in order to become a Christian. Now, you see this most definitively sometimes when parents bring children in and the parent will announce to me, well, my my child became a Christian this week. They prayed the sinner's prayer. And then uh, and sometimes that's exactly what has happened. The child did become a Christian. But sometimes when... I begin to question the child. It becomes clear, not just to me, but to the parent, that the child doesn't really understand salvation. Now, they could answer the parent's questions right because the parent coached them uh, with the truth and said, well, you know, this is what the Bible says. And uh, But sometimes what a child is doing is just uh, rabbiting back the answers that the parent gave. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't coach your children with truth. You should. But, uh, my, what else would you want to coach them with? You coach them with truth. You give them the truth. That's our uh, responsibility as a parent to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But it's to go beyond that. Um, We are to pray for them that God would open their eyes up to understand the truth. And only God can give understanding. He uses human agents in that process. But very often what Christian parents have done is they're just using catchphrases like, well, Johnny, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart? Why don't you invite Jesus into your heart and he'll save you? Well, even that metaphor, invite Jesus into your heart, is found nowhere in the word of God. In the realm now of Christendom, it's only about 75 years old You will never even see that phrase used anywhere, uh, 75 years or older. It's recent, and it's an undefined metaphor for most children, and it becomes meaningless. So even adults sometimes, they pray the sinner's prayer, but they don't understand. You say, do you have to understand in order to believe? Yes. In fact, one of the solas of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. And they call that the principal truth in that they believe that until a person understood that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone, that they could not be saved. And so the reformers rightly taught that understanding preceded conversion. And that's plainly what Romans chapters three and four teach. With that said, there are other people who pray the sinner's prayer, but they don't really mean it. You could certainly pray it to get your pastor off your back or your friend or your parent or your loved one who, quote unquote, want you to become a Christian and you pray it for them, but you don't mean it. That means nothing to God. Or sometimes a person will pray the sinner's prayer and I'll even ask them, hey, did you mean what you prayed? And they'll say, yes, I meant it. Well, are you saved? And they'll say, well, I hope so. I think so. Are they saved? No. Why? Because they didn't believe what God said. Faith is believing what God said. He who comes to God must believe that he is. Not that he exists. That's a given. That's imbecilic. Those who have tried to translate or interpret that verse in that fashion. The Bible devotes one half of one verse to atheism. It never tries to prove the existence of God. It assumes all men know that God exists through creation, through conscience, through care, through dimensions of God's general revelation given to man. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. No, contextually, he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he's able. That's the context, that God can do what he said, and therefore that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
Faith is believing what God said. That's the pattern all the way through that chapter of Scripture with over 40 different examples of faith. Uh, Noah built an ark never had rained upon the earth. He gives them the dimensions of the ark, takes the man a hundred years to build it. And he does it in faith. Abraham, pick up your family and move to the place that I'm going to show you. Imagine that Abraham all of a sudden packing up his whole family and crew. Where are you going? We're moving. Where are you moving to? I don't know. You don't know where you're moving to? No, we're just moving. Why are you moving? God told us to move. He moved in faith that God would reveal to him where it was he wanted him to go. That's faith. It's believing what God said. So if a man or a woman prays the sinner's prayer and they don't believe what God promised, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Paul contextually applies that to Jesus Christ, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. If we don't believe that, we're either saying, God, you're weak, you're not able. He who comes to God, remember, must believe that he is, that he's able. Um, We're either believing, God, you're not able, that you're weak, you're impotent, or we're saying, God, you're immoral. You won't do what you said. You're a liar. Well, God cannot lie. God can't do anything that's contrary to his nature. Now, with that said, my sense is that a lot of your consternation is due to the fact that you are, in your own words, addicted to pain medication. Now, it might be that you're not regenerated of the Spirit. That's a real possibility, and I'm not the judge of your heart. I do know as a general principle that the Word of God teaches that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life has passed away, and all things have become new. I also know it's possible for a Christian to get an injury, This has never happened to me, so this is not personal testimony. Let me just say that before I get any email. Um, But I know it's possible for a Christian to have an injury of one sort or another and then to begin to take pain medicine and literally to get addicted to it. Uh, That can happen. Um, And sometimes people need some help in that. The difference, though, between an unsaved person on pain medicine— And a saved person is a saved person recognizes that, no, this is beyond pain. This is a high that I'm achieving and seeking. And this is something that I want to do where an where that's what, that's the testimony of an unsaved person where a saved person would say, man, I, I got a problem here and I need the grace of God to deliver me. And sometimes too, when you're dealing with uh, this kind of sin, you need help that goes beyond, uh, you know, yourself in the sense you need God's help. And sometimes God's help comes through God's people. Paul says to Titus, Titus, when you came to me, uh, you comforted me in my depression. So God comforted the apostle Paul through Titus. So sometimes God uses a means to deliver. And sometimes he uses the accountability of the body of Christ to accomplish that. Read Second Corinthians, the first chapter, the first five verses, and you'll see that truth echoed there as well. So uh, sometimes an individual like yourself needs some help where maybe you can go for 60 or 90 days to a Christian rehab center. And there's several of them in the country The challenge is getting in because most of the secular ones that have about a 20% success rate cost an average three to $500 a day. And people spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to get help. 
Most of the Christian ones are free. They don't cost anything because they're supported through the generosity of Christians and others who give to those ministries. And they have, on average, about an 80% success rate. So this individual, if you want to call me um, and ask me for some specifics, I can suggest some that I feel comfortable with that are doing a good job for the uh, cause of Christ. But with that said, you know, if you have no heart to change, then it might be that you have good reason to question your salvation. Um, And again, I don't know you. You're calling from out of state. So let me just suggest as well that you might go to our website at searchthescriptures.org and click on, would you like to know God is your friend? And I would begin by listening to that because I want to make sure we're on the same page. And I think you might find that helpful. And if you don't have internet access, uh, let us know and we'll, we'll mail that to you. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, indeed. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. A person actually dictated this question last week. They write, uh, I recently heard a minister preach that a person can be saved but not sealed with the Holy Ghost. He went on further to say that if you were not sealed with the Holy Ghost, you would miss the rapture and come up in the second resurrection and be judged at the white throne judgment, according to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and be granted eternal life at this judgment. Could you please clarify and straighten out this teaching? Well, first I'd say that this preacher that you're listening to probably shouldn't be a preacher because he's certainly not sound in doctrine. And one of the qualifications for a person to be a pastor in the word pastor, elder, bishop is used interchangeably in the Bible is that he's apt to teach in sound and doctrine. If you look at the two parallel passages in first Timothy three and Titus one, and it appears that he is neither Um, I mean, this is just nonsense that he is teaching you. The Bible is very clear in Ephesians 1 when Paul describes uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He says in him, in Christ is the pronoun here, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So there are three critical verbs here, listening, believed, and sealed. And really that's how salvation unfolds. First you listen to the message of truth, you believe the message of truth, and then you're sealed in Christ, how? With the Holy Spirit of promise. He's the spirit of promise. He's the one that the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, promised would come uh, as a fulfillment of the new covenant. He's the one that Jesus said would come in the Olivet Discourse and John's Gospel. He promised again uh, at the Ascension, look, don't leave the upper room to go out and try to preach. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so he is the spirit of promise who's given as a pledge. Uh, The King James says an earnest. You know what earnest money is. When you go to buy a house, they'll say, well, put $5,000 down. What are they asking you to do? Well, they're... They're asking you to complete, to give evidence that you'll keep your word. Because if you don't keep the words of the contract, then they keep your $5,000. Well, the Holy Spirit is given as our pledge, as our earnest. 
that what God began, he will complete. So you hear because you can't believe until you first heard the plan of salvation, Romans 10. You believe and then you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. How long are we sealed for? Well, the Bible plainly says in the same epistle in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and he never leaves you. He is God's guarantee for the coming day of redemption that what God began, he would complete. So this is just sheer nonsense, not to mention a gross abuse of Matthew 25 that has nothing to do with what this preacher is talking about, that, but he, that he could even miss the ceiling. I mean, this sounds more like a works righteousness and a false gospel, and this pastor that you're sitting under is muddle-headed, and my suggestion to you would be to find another church where a pastor is at least sound in the basics of the Christian faith. We're talking about the ABCs now of the Christian faith. And if a man's, I understand where a new Christian can be muddle-headed and confused, but for a man who says I'm a pastor and he's not sound a doctor, he shouldn't be a pastor at all. All right, very good. Let's go to our next live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Rick. Hey, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Um, morning. I, uh, I wanted to know, I would like to hear you talk a little bit about, my, my question is uh, about the time where um, right at the point where Adam chose to sin. And, um, you know, just thinking about um, him seeing his wife there as a lost person and him having not sinned yet and whether or not, I mean, I, believe, I would believe that he would have seen just the, the total change in, in her being um, in who she is and everything after having sinned, and then having done that, um, he would have had to chose to be like her. Um, and and I know he sinned, but it, it seems also that he would have had to choose to sin. Um, and and my and and my thinking would be that um, uh, you know that he had put his wife before God in doing that very act that God told him not to do. But cause I was just wondering if you could talk about that. All right, let me see if I can comment on it. Appreciate the question. Uh, interestingly, in the New Testament, when Paul looks back on this event when he deals with the role of men and women in the church, um, he says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then he uses a particle, we translate it for, it's a causal in the Greek. There are different words uh, that are, uh, that had carried different nuances, the word for. Sometimes it can mean, well, let me explain further what we call an explanatory for. This is a causal. Because or for, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So he gives really a number of reasons as to why women should not teach or exercise authority over men or be pastors, we could paraphrase it. 
women pastors, the idea of a pastorette is not a biblical doctrine. It's not something that the Bible teaches. And Paul takes this back to first the created order. Some think, well, Paul is just dealing with a problem that Timothy had as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Nothing could be further from what the Bible reveals, um, that this is not simply a local uh, church problem is clear from the basis of his argument. Number one, the order of creation. God made man to be the head. Uh, the woman was created as his helper. So it was not uh, Eve who was first created, but Adam. So the order of creation dictated that Adam was to be the head and not Eve. And the head, among other things, has authority. He has responsibility, but nonetheless, he has authority. And actually, you know, some try to dichotomize, teach, and exercise authority. And they'll say, well, you know, um, I'm teaching, but I'm not exercising authority over a person, over a man. uh, Because I'm teaching as a woman, uh, and this is what some evangelicals are doing, some egalitarians as they're called, who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm teaching, but my, I'm teaching under my pastor's authority. Well, that, that's ridiculous. Your pastor has no authority to give you authority that God specifically says you cannot have. Uh, and again, there are different degrees of egalitarianism. Some, you know, just take this as a local church problem. They say it has nothing to do with a man giving me authority. I'm a pastor because, or a pastorette because I'm called of God. And uh, again, the will of God never contradicts the word of God. So Paul takes it back to the created order that the man is the head. You can't have two heads. You, you, you have a monster if you do. If you have no head, it's dead. There has to be a leader. And in the three institutions that God dictated, there's only three institutions that God created. First, the institution of the family. Then he created government. And then he created the church. And in those three institutions, God gives male headship. And really in the family, uh, which is the smallest microcosm of all society, when we ignore this principle, societies disintegrate. Where does a child learn to respect his teacher at school, his teacher at church, the police officer, authority that's put over him and over all of us? Well, you're supposed to learn it in the home. How do you see it in the home? Well, it's supposed to be modeled between the husband-wife relationship. That's what the Word of God teaches. And then he says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Adam wasn't deceived. The Bible is very clear. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. Eve was deceived. And really, when a woman steps out of her God-given roles, she breaks fellowship with God, and she opens herself up to deception. Uh, Interestingly, a number of cults in the world today have been started by women. Uh, Now, there have been some started by men, too. You could attach their name to many, but a lot of women have started cults. Why? Because they've took authority and stepped out of their God-given role. And then Paul, again, he's not... uh, putting women down and uh, he's really putting women up and he's saying, listen, God's given you a different call. He's given you a higher call as a woman that you are to be involved in the process of of raising children, of of building leaders for the next generation. That's, That's a big thing. That's not a small thing. 
All right. Our next caller dictated their question. They would like to know, what does it mean that the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, as outlined in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen? Well, Paul is giving instructions to different groups of people in that chapter, to those who are single. And he says, listen, if God's gifted you to be single, that that's a great thing. Why? Because he'll later state at the end of the chapter that there is undistracted devotion to the work of God that you can give as a single person. When you get married, uh, your the priorities change. Uh, you have a dual priority between serving your wife and serving the kingdom of God as well. Then he addresses different groups, the unmarried. Uh, again, uh, if you're unmarried, uh, stay unmarried if God's gifted you that way, but he hasn't for most, so consider being married. And then he says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, meaning This is not something I've come up with. This is something that Jesus addressed specifically. The wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, here's her options. Remain single, remain unmarried, or be reconciled to your husband. Live like a single person or, or get married. And then he says, but to the rest I say not the Lord, meaning this is something Jesus didn't address, but I am going to address with equal authority. Why? Because he's an apostle and he represents Christ and is given the promise that he has the ability to write the very words of God, that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's given by inspiration, and, and that as an apostle he can write Scripture. So to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, don't send him away. Or if a woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, don't send her husband away. Why? Because the unbelieving husband is sanctified. He's set apart through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her unbelieving husband. He's not saying, he's not saying that a wife can be saved for her husband. Uh, No one can be saved for you, but you yourself. You have to personally make your decision for Christ. Sometimes people have abused um, the passage in Acts 16 and others like it, the household passages where it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you sh- and you shall be saved, you and your household. That if you believe, then somehow your whole household will, will be saved. That's not what it's talking about. No one can be saved for another person. The Bible is very, very clear. But what you can do is that as a believer and through your godly lifestyle, you can, in a special way, set your husband apart so that through your changed life, and this is what First Peter 3, 1 through 6 teaches, you can have an influence in bringing him into the kingdom of God. Um, and that's important. That's no small thing. That's a, that, that, that's a big thing. Anyway, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. All right. In Matthew 12, verse 50, it says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The does the will component of that verse almost sounds like a works uh, aspect of uh, the salvation. What are your thoughts? Well, if you look at the context, if you remember, while he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
So Christ had other brothers and sisters. One is plain. Uh, Mary was not a perpetual virgin, not according to this verse, or according to chapter 13 of Matthew, where they are specifically named. But what he is underscoring here is that obedience is a mark of a true relationship with him. That it does not come through physical relationships, but it comes spiritually. And if you're rightly related to him spiritually, then it's going to show itself up in a life of obedience. Um, The Jews, if you remember, John 8 claimed a relationship with God physically. We're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus came back and said, listen, if you were really Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is... Abraham is not really your daddy, spiritually speaking. He says, in fact, your father is the devil. So Jesus is not teaching salvation by works, but what he is teaching is that a person who is genuinely saved will have a changed life. The one who is committed to the will of God. He has just said that same truth in Matthew chapter 7, where he admonishes us to enter by the narrow gate, because wide is the gate and fat is the road that leads to destruction, and there's a bunch of folks who are on it. And he says, not everyone later in that chapter, a few verses later, who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, when you um, use the person's name, especially twice in the first century, you're claiming um, in intimacy with that person. And there are different languages that do this in different ways. I remember taking French as four years of French in high school, and the unfamiliar form for you was the word vous. But if we're a close friend, you use the word tu. Um, it meant, oh, I, I'm comfortable enough to say I have a relationship with you. When you said Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha, you weren't saying, well, we're just acquaintances, but we're friends. That was a hebristic way of communicating. And so when you said, Lord, Lord, you are claiming a personal relationship with God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Again, Jesus is not teaching salvation by works and contradicting what he has taught earlier in this same sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. When he tells us that our righteousness has to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, No, he, he plainly taught salvation by grace through faith. But if we've been saved by the grace of God, we will demonstrate that in a changed life. We're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It manifests itself in a different kind of lifestyle. And that's precisely what Jesus is echoing again in Matthew 13. Let's go to the next question. 525-1859, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP-980, or you can email us at tbl at net. And uh, that last person that called and had a question, uh, they had a follow-up, so um, if they'd like to call back, they may do so right. now. Okay. Um, in, let me see, we already went to that one. Does the Bible address cremation as an alternate uh, to, or alternative to burial. No, it doesn't. Really, the, the, the manner in which God's people were um, dealt with at, at death is always through burial. Uh, I, I believe if you want to be truly biblical by example and model, you should bury your dead, not cremate them. Uh, somebody falsely said, and again, people have different ears, and you know, as a pastor, you're always accused of saying something. And I got some email recently 
some guys said, well, you said that if you're, if you're cremated, you go to hell. Well, I, I've never said that. That's ridiculous. And anyone who's ever heard me preach or teach on this subject or any number of subjects know that I, I would never say something like that. But, uh, no, the net effect of cremation in terms of the resurrection of the body is nil. It doesn't matter if your body was burned in a fire or exploded in an airplane or was lost at sea or cremated in some furnace. God is still going to resurrect the body. But I believe the biblical pattern is established by the Old Testament where every saint of God is buried. In the New Testament, the saints of God are buried. Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 when he describes the resurrection is there's an assumption is that you'll be buried, uh, that we should bury our dead. And uh, when God himself performs a funeral, he doesn't cremate Moses. It says he, the Lord, buried Moses, Deuteronomy 31. I have a whole message on it if you want to listen uh, to the final chapter in the Genesis series, Genesis 50, or I also deal with it a little more extensively in Genesis 23, where I deal with the death of Sarah. Uh, I think you can explore that in a little more detail. Very good. 525-1859. Toll free, 877-924-7980. And finally, a New Orthodox Church of America mission is starting up in Beaufort. One listener writes, Could you tell us something about their doctrines, please? I tried to get a definitive view of what they believe from the Internet, but was not satisfied with the clarity of what I found there. They seem to infer that they are the original true Christian church. Well, um, they would claim that, I suppose. The word ortho, you know, means correct. It's a Greek word, and, and doxa in different forms can take on different nuances, but... It has the idea of to believe. So when you say we're the Orthodox Church, we're saying we are the correctly believing church. Now, everybody wants to say that of themselves. And I suppose there certainly was a time in the history of the Orthodox Church where they were known for biblical orthodoxy. They are not known for that today. Um, on paper, uh, they have had the gospel, but in practice, like many denominations today where you can find a uh, a sound doctrinal statement they may not really ascribe to those beliefs or they may have redefined it there's it's it's a big big realm technically it's called the orthodox catholic church that is the orthodox universal church um some would date it back to the day of christ an unbroken line most would say they're they're about a thousand years old um but in either case they are definitely different today from Many evangelicals, even even their canon of Scripture is different. Uh, the Catholic Church um, has, uh, the, or the Orthodox Church has 81 books in it, in their canon. We have 66. Uh, the Catholic Church has four less than that. They have even a larger canon than, than the Catholic Church has, which is astounding when you think about it. Now, people will count the books differently, but... Uh, you know, the the Catholics and the Orthodox they have 14 chapters in the book of Daniel. They attach two books to it. We have 12. Um, the uh, Orthodox Bible has 151 Psalms. We have 150. But there's a lot of different beliefs. I Maybe we can pick up on this next time. There's too much here. Thank you.